Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio here with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. That would be me. And Pastor Sean Richards. That would be him. <laughs> we are live streaming from our church campus here in Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. This is A Reason for Hope, a weekday Bible answer program where you, our live stream audience, can ask our panel of pastors to answer your questions about the Christian worldview, the truth claims of the Christian faith, and perhaps even how to interpret and apply a specific passage of scripture that you would like to inquire about. So we'd encourage you to do that, and there's multiple ways you can uh, join us. You can join us on Facebook. We live stream to Facebook and YouTube every weekday, uh, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And you can either go to Facebook and just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or you can go directly to our page, which is ccf, uh, facebook.com forward slash ccf Tucson, and use the comment section to ask your questions. We just ask that they're sincere, uh, honest, and uh, really there's no question that you can't ask as long as it's related to uh, world religions and how those relate to the Christian faith. So that'd be Happy to take your questions there. We also live stream simultaneously to YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search for A Reason for Hope. If you want to go straight to our channel, just go to youtube.com forward slash at A Reason for Hope, all letters ending with the number 546. If you want to avoid social media altogether, you can go straight to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com and you can join our live stream there. And in fact, you can watch all of our services on all of these platforms. We do a, a Wednesday evening Oasis service where we are currently going verse by verse through the book of Ezekiel, as well as our Sunday morning services starting this Sunday. In fact, if you've come the last couple of years, we usually have three services on Sunday, but we are changing that schedule to our previous pre-pandemic schedule. So our services this Christmas Eve will be 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., and then we're having a Christmas Eve service at 6 p.m. So if you are not a regular attender and you're listening here in the Tucson area, we would love to have you join us on our Christmas Eve service. <clears throat> if you want to, again, bypass the uh, social media platforms, maybe you've abandoned Facebook, abandoned YouTube, or all those things, uh, you can just go to our website and uh, just click that Watch Live tab and uh, you can watch the live stream there. Also, if you are part of our community, I would encourage you to download our app. We have an app that you can download from the Apple or Google Play Store. And this app, you can check out our calendar of events, what kinds of groups and meetings and studies we have going on on campus and off campus, in-home Bible groups. You can create uh, chat groups, join chat groups, also has a nifty digital Bible where you can highlight and take notes as you go through God's Word. You can also go through an archive of our past messages. We teach book by book, so if you wanted to say go through a study of the Gospel of John, you can do that. And you can follow along with Pastor Scott verse by verse and get the whole counsel of God's Word. If you want to ask a question a little more discreetly, you can just email us directly as well. And that email address is questionsforhope all letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. Also encourage you to follow our senior pastor on the X platform. You can also leave questions there for this program, A Reason for Hope. And you can follow him, his handle, 
formerly Twitter, is at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H. Before we get to your questions and uh, whatever um, current events as it pertains to Israel and God's plan for Israel as our prophecy update that we've been doing a lot of this last couple of months, we'll take a moment to pray and get started. Let's do that. Oh, Lord, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to explore your word, and we invite your presence here. We invite your power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to understand what your truth has to say. Lord, we pray for the questions that are going to be coming in, the hearts of the people asking them, even those who may be coming across our broadcast and uh, just passively listening in. I pray that you would have very special and specific things that you would speak to each of their hearts about your good, acceptable, and perfect will for their lives. I pray this would be a life-changing day for many, many people, and they would understand that you, the true and living God, look from heaven, you see all the sons of men from the place where you're dwelling, you look on all the inhabitants of the earth, that you fashion our hearts individually and consider all of our works. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. And we pray that uh, this exploration of your word would confirm to us that you are a God who keeps close attention on your people. And Lord, we pray as well for those who might be joining in who don't know you, uh, maybe even are skeptical uh, about uh, what they understand about a relationship with you, that you would speak deeply to them. And who knows, maybe by the end of this program, draw them to a saving relationship with you. We thank you for uh, the fact that you came to seek and save the lost in your able to do it as we share your word. May that happen for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well. Well, <laughs> another day, another prophecy update. I'll try to be as uh, direct about it as uh, we possibly can. Uh, we talked to you about uh, the widening of the conflict that is happening in the Middle East, uh, particularly in uh, the Red Sea, uh, the Gulf of Aden, uh, the area between Saudi Arabia and uh, the Horn of Africa, a hugely trafficked commercial area that has now uh, been ground to a standstill uh, by the actions of the Houthis. They like to call themselves Houthi rebels, but they're really not rebelling against anything going on in the country of Yemen. They basically control it and have now turned to uh, standard operating procedure for a lot of uh, Muslim uh, extremist groups, uh, piracy, and uh, the threats of uh, interrupting uh, nautical traffic to accomplish uh, their plans. Uh, in response, uh, the United States has put together a, uh, a task force called uh, Prosperity Guardian. Uh, it is now composed of 19 different nations whose mission is to stop the Houthis uh, from uh, launching, say, uh, uh, surface-to-air missiles at, uh, or I should say, surface-to-surface missiles, uh, torpedoes and such, at tanker ships that happen to be trying to bring commerce across this particular part of the world. The Houthis, uh, for their part, responded to this announcement of uh, Operation Prosperity Garden by saying that it is their desire to turn the Red Sea into Prosperity Garden's graveyard. So you can see we're dealing with uh, typical rational thought from such folks. Uh, under uh, such circumstances. Uh, the, the fact that uh, the United States has uh, been having uh, what we would call a schizophrenic uh, approach to what is going on in the Gaza campaign has not uh, gone unnoticed uh, by an awful lot of commentators and by an awful lot of nations. Uh, in the Jerusalem Post today, uh, there was uh, an essay written uh, by Douglas uh, Altabeff, who is a regular contributor 
at the Jerusalem Post about uh, the bizarre nature of uh, what is going on as far as U.S. policy in that particular area. Now, you need to understand the Jerusalem Post is not what I would call a right-wing rag. Uh, it is something that is definitely, well, some say center-left, some say farther left than center as far as their points of view on things going on in the world. However, in this uh, essay, uh, a, uh, a real uh, uh, interesting analysis of what's going on in the U.S. response based uh, largely uh, upon uh, poll takers and individuals trying to take the temperature of uh, the election season going into 2024 has uh, put the Biden administration in uh, what we would call somewhat of a pickle. On the one side of the coin, a very strong constituency in traditional democratic politics has been the Jewish vote. On the other side of the coin, another very strong constituency has been the pro-Palestinian vote, uh, with up to 40% of Democrats supporting the Palestinian position in this conflict, uh, depending on the poll that you read. And, and so you have on uh, one day uh, President Joe Biden saying that we stand unequivocally with Israel, we will stand with them through to the end of uh, displacing Hamas in Gaza. Then, of course, uh, we have uh, various individuals uh, being sent over as representatives to Israel with a message that Israel needs to tone down this offensive, that uh, it's okay if they go after specific terrorists, uh, terrorist leaders, maybe take out a few of these terrorist leaders and then declare victory. But uh, the idea of completely removing Hamas from any kind of governance, any kind of presence uh, of any significant nature in uh, Gaza uh, they say, no, we can't really do that. Uh, the other thing is the insistence on sending humanitarian aid through uh, with Israeli, uh, uh, if not approval, at least uh, facilitation. The problem with this humanitarian aid is that as soon as it gets into Gaza, it is immediately taken into uh, uh, the possession of Hamas, which uses all of these supplies to restock and feed their own troops. None of it gets to the average civilians. So, uh, you know, again, sitting there and watching this happen on the guise of humanitarian aid, very, very uh, difficult. Uh, so uh, once again, the Biden administration finds itself in this corner. The uh, Biden administration is e eager not to alienate the progressives in the party and the progressives hate Israel. This according to the essay in the Jerusalem Post. Thus splitting the difference, as it were, in Biden's policy. The result is to root for Israel not to win. Certainly not to win in any way that would be a rebuke to the Palestinian sympathizers that are marauding down streets and towns and cities across America. This is from the essay, Bizarre Injunctions to Tone Down the Fighting and to Provide Massive Humanitarian Aid, all reek, reek of uh, indecisiveness and muddled thinking. The conga line of officialdom bunning hopping its way through Israel, Biden's Secretary of State Blinken, National Security Advisor Sullivan, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, to name a few, are offering the same advice resident of a country that has not won a war since 1945. <laughs> you can tell this particular writer is not too pleased with us at this point. The bottom line of this essay says the view from America does not look good. Uh, even crazier, this is from the essay, have been the admonitions to include the Palestinian Authority and the post-war governance of Gaza and the bell ringer of them all that Israel should be seriously pursuing the two-state solution. The last one sounds like it comes from a comedy club audition, but it is deadly serious. 
The view from America does not look good. One wonders what historians will say in terms of clarity and conscience of American decision makers as they seek to please Iran and refuse to stand with their stalwart ally Israel. Even more important and potentially even harsher will be Israel's, uh, history's judgment of Israel's leadership in the handling of the current war and the incessant diplomatic pressures to, in effect, cut and run. Uh, Israel's political leadership, their prime minister on down, including opposition parties currently in the Knesset, must know the country is quite united about the need to follow through and complete the mission of dismantling Hamas. The unity exists across a strong desire to retrieve the hostages, but the overwhelming sentiment in Israel is that defeating Hamas will accelerate the release of hostages and therefore must be pursued as the primary objective. The resolve of our soldiers, the willingness to sacrifice for their country is sky high and rock solid. Having this sense of mission aborted by a leadership that caves international pressure would produce a blowback of dramatic, even historic proportions. Uh, again, unfortunately and uneasily, our leadership might be forced to choose between international approval and domestic support. Any leader seeking to stay in office, in the case of the prime minister, any uh, leader focused on his legacy, must know that bucking foreign leaders and saying no to them is something Israelite leaders have done in the past. However, being perceived as abandoning the citizenry and dishonoring the sacrifice of those who served, especially those who made the ultimate sacrifice, will be dealt with unforgivingly. October 7th gave us a wake-up call of seismic proportions. We cannot, we will not seek to ignore or unlearn the lessons that came from that call. Not following through on the self-apparent conclusions from that wake-up call will be judged very harshly by history, especially for the leaders who refused or proved unable to follow through. Now, here's the, the money line here. Right now, Israel must understand that other countries are pursuing their own interests in seeking to determine ours. Fair enough, but we must be true, clear-eyed, and determined to pursue our own interests, regardless of how they are viewed abroad. So, essentially, Israel is coming more and more to uh, the conclusion that, uh, well, uh, once again, the only ones that we can count on when push comes to shove is themselves. But I would like to add something to that. Psalm 121 tells us, that he who watches over you will not slumber. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The Lord is your keeper, uh, the psalm goes on and speaks, specifically re regarding God's care of Israel. Now, we know prophetically, and this is really where the prophecy update uh, today goes, we know prophetically that according to passages like Zechariah chapter 12, Jerusalem is going to be a stone of stumbling and a cup of reeling to all nations, though all nations of the world be gathered against it. Uh, we know which way the tide ultimately is going to go, that Israel is going to be isolated. Israel is going to have to take care of Israel. And ultimately, we see in the revelation of the Great Tribulation period, Israel will see who the true and living God is and be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for uh, loyalty to him and belief in his promised Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. That's where it's all going. Now, what we're seeing here is kind of another bump on the road in that particular direction. But it's very fascinating that the United States' vacillating position, uh, first uh, supporting Israel, then, you know, kind of putting your finger up to uh, see which way the wind is blowing politically, is uh, emboldening other nations across the world to pursue their own ends. Uh, for instance, uh, we are told that Venezuela, 
which is no friend of the United States. The Biden administration just announced a uh, hostage uh, exchange that took place with uh, nine Americans that were held hostage by the Venezuelan government. You think they're our friends? They are not our friends. Venezuela is also preparing to launch an invasion of the neighboring country of Guyana to seize the oil-rich areas along their border. So we've got war going on in South America. We also discover that uh, President Biden's meeting with uh, Chairman Xi of China uh, in San Francisco was not the rosy uh, uh, progress-making uh, uh, affair that we were led to believe. NBC News just released a report right before airtime uh, that uh, word from uh, people that were there said that Xi said to, to Biden, no uncertain terms, we are taking back Taiwan. We would appreciate taking back Taiwan peacefully without the U.S. intervening military, but take it back we will. So once again, wars and rumors of wars, uh, things directly revolving around Israel. Israel, in a sense, as we've mentioned, the straw that stirs the drink as far as international affairs are concerned. Uh, we, we see all of this happening, and it shouldn't surprise anyone uh, that is a, a student of biblical prophecy. This is definitely something we should expect. Uh, whether this birth pain continues to accelerate in its intensity, I think is a fairly uh, good bet uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, whether is Israel's leadership, including Benjamin Netanyahu, by the way, was part of uh, the famous raid on Entebbe, uh, where Jewish uh, captives were uh, miraculously rescued uh, from uh, captivity in Uganda, I don't think is anybody's idea of a softy, of someone that will fold under pressure. Uh, I think Israel is going to basically say thanks, but no thanks to the United States as far as telling us how to uh, conduct this particular war, speaking for Benjamin Netanyahu. I believe Israel has, uh, first of all, had too great a provocation on October 7th to just say, well, we've gone this far and now we're going to quit. Also, the vast, overwhelming, almost uh, uh, metaphysical certitude of support among Israel, of the dismantling of Hamas as the only way, only metric of determining victory is going to tell any Israeli politician that if they back off from anything south of that, they're out of a job. That They, they will not survive that politically. Uh, to add to this, uh, when we take a look at, uh, at uh, what's going on uh, as far as uh, the next-door neighbors, uh, that is the Palestinian Authority. Uh, a poll said 75% of people living in the Palestinian Authority's controlled territories absolutely enthusiastically support what happened on October 7th. The idea of a two-state solution, as far as Israel is concerned, is off the board. However, our nation keeps beating that drum. Why? Well, because our nation's political policies, like the administration that came before Donald Trump, is, uh, as far as the Middle East is concerned, is uh, basically con uh, committed to one proposition, to appease the mad mullahs in Tehran. Uh, ultimately, that's what they want to do, and uh, they want to have a certain amount of political cover. But when this political cover has been eroded away uh, by the progressive wing taking Hamas's side and all of this, well, uh, once again, you can count on politicians to uh, politicate, I guess, 
Uh, you know, the, the, the sad thing is uh, this is what's happening in our country. The sobering thing is uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 is still in effect. God promised he would bless those who blessed Israel, curse those who cursed them. Certainly, uh, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Uh, it was valid at some point in our history. But the minute we turn our back on Israel, uh, we, I think, will experience what it's like uh, to reap what we've sown as far as uh, God's righteous judgment. Just look at the amount of innocent babies aborted. Look at the United States as the main purveyor of pornography to the world. The list goes on and on. Uh, the only reason that we haven't got what's coming to us, I believe, is because we have st stood shoulder to shoulder with Israel. We give that up. Uh, Katie, bar the door. Um, all bets are off. And uh, there's an awful lot of uh, indicators, uh, including uh, a, the Colorado Supreme Court uh, ruling that Donald Trump has to be mm -hmm. taken off the ballot. People cannot vote for him in the Republican primary in the name of democracy. I, that, that's that's mind-boggling to me. Mm -hmm. and, and this ruling, obviously, when it lasts 30 seconds in the Supreme Court. But when you have an entire state Supreme Court saying something like this, well, once again, we see uh, the trend. We see which way things are going. So pray for our leaders. Pray for Israel. Pray for uh, more stable and solid and scripturally backed perspectives to prevail. And if you have a congressman, if you have a senator, communicate to them respectfully but firmly your stand with Israel and the United States needs to stand with Israel. We have that voice still in this country. Write to Joe Biden, write to the president and let him know respectfully but firmly that you stand with Israel in all of this and pray and we've done what we can. Hmm. Thanks for the update, Scott. And thanks for that uh, challenge. Uh, speaking of Zechariah, you mentioned Zechariah 12. <clears throat> we got an email question about uh, seeking explanation of Zechariah 12, specifically verses 12 through 13. Is there a reason the families of David, Nathan, Levi, and Shimei, Shimei are mentioned in particular when mourning about seeing their Messiah, possibly being representatives of the kings, priests, and prophets? Or were these individuals connected with those who were directly associated with the Sanhedrin that executed their Messiah? Don't look at me. I asked the question. <laughs> oh, you asked the question. Okay. Yeah, uh, basically going through it in my own studies, uh, David obviously would be a standard representation of a king, and I don't believe in prophecy filler. So I wondered why these names in particular, since verse 14 goes on to say every family, why naming these guys individually. I know of two Nathans biblically. First was the prophet that was serving at the time of King David, uh, Bar, Samuel, and uh, Gad. But Nathan was the one who called him out for his nonsense with Bathsheba as a representative right. of the prophets. And Levi is pretty much the tandem tribe that made up the priesthood. But Shimei threw me for a loop on that because the only one I could think of was the guy who hurled stones at David, cursing him because he was uh, of the Saul party. There, Shimei uh, was also Levi's grandson, according to Numbers chapter 3. Yeah, so no, my, my no. question for clarification is uh, the significance of these four names mentioned specifically as seeing the one whom they pierced in mourning. Because I, I know Revelation 1, that's quoted, but the significance of these, I'm curious. Yeah, I think uh, you, you hit the nail on the head in that all of them are representatives of the absolute pillars 
the uh, foundation stones of Jewish society. It was a way of saying that virtually everyone of significance, everyone in leadership in Israel is going to lead in this morning uh, when the reference is made to the house of David. Again, that is referring to Jewish royalty, the, uh, the kings, if you will. Uh, when uh, we hear about the house of Nathan, well, again, that would refer to, uh, in uh, shorthand, uh, the prophets, the spiritual leaders of Israel, uh, as far as declaring his voice prophetically. The house of Levi by itself, again, this would refer to the priest. The house of Shammai by itself is very interesting in that this is a particular rooster call. Yep. Well, hope I didn't put everybody to sleep. Sorry about that. But uh, the house of Shammai also kind of dovetails into an interesting place in Ezekiel that we're talking about here, in that there is a demarcation in Ezekiel between the priests, that is the, the standard Levites, and a particular lineage of priests that uh, included the, uh, the priest Zadok, who stayed loyal to David uh, during, uh, not just during the Absalom rebellion, but when Adonijah wanted to seize the throne instead of the prophetically predicted uh, king of Solomon. Again, Zadok stood with uh, scripture. He stood with uh, David loyally in all of this. The idea of being the descendants of Shammai there would carry the idea of not just being priests, but priests that remain loyal to the, to the things of God. Priests, in a sense, uh, with a capital P, if you will. The okay. ones who really knew and served their God. So uh, that, that's the best explanation that I was able to come up with in my study of Zechariah. Uh, you know, again, Charles Feinberg, in his excellent commentary on the book of Zechariah, goes into a little bit more detail here. Yeah, the only other theory I read about was that's a reference to the common man. Yeah, so. hmm. yeah. But uh, the common man, I, the only reason I wouldn't buy into that is because afterwards we see all the families that remain every family by itself and their wives by themselves entering into this morning. There's no greater way, more vivid way of being able to say uh, that the entirety of Jewish society, without exception, is going to be broken in mourning when they look upon him who they pierced. Uh, I think that's a fascinating prophecy because uh, some Jewish scholars who want to deny that this is speaking about Jesus would say, well, the term pierced can be translated pierced, but it can also uh, be translated like a lion. Well, what is, you know, even if you buy that, my uh, response to that is, what is the business end of a lion anyway? And what does a business end of a lion do? Isn't it claws and teeth, which do what? Pierce. <laughs> so um, we're definitely talking about a wounded Messiah. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah. All right, well, thank you. That, uh, that helps. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know you asked the question, but there yes. we go. <laughs> Jordan wants to know, is Revelation 22, 18 through 19 forgivable if one repented? Uh, what is repentance? Also, what is repentance? And what is the point of Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19? Yeah, that'd kind of be the crux of it. Um, the passage lists off the sort of things that aren't going to be welcome in the new creation. The idea of basically listing off your pet sin, liars, thieves, adulterers, fornicators, idolaters, the like. Um, these are the kind of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And a good cross-reference to it would be 1 Corinthians 6, where it notes, do you not know that neither thieves, idolaters, 
fornicators, sodomites, homosexuals, adulterers, and the like will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it goes on to note, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are hedonist groups that would use this as to say those behaviors are now justified, but it's not identifying the verb, it's identifying the noun as being justified. The individuals have been cleansed, not their activities. So if we can, in fact, do these things, but not be these things in the presence of God, what changed? Well, pretty much go through Salvation 101. In Ephesians chapter 2, it describes us all in our own ways as dead and trespasses and sins, children of wrath just as the others, sons of hell in no uncertain terms. Then it goes on to note, but God, with his great love for us, which he loved us and demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus, note that because it gets repeated throughout the chapter, has made us seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in Christ Jesus, to the ages to come, we would be vessels, examples of his mercy. Paraphrased, of course, but you get the point, and it all leads into, for just by grace, you've been saved through faith. If that's then the case, then it's not a question of, okay, I did that, the, these uh, mortal sins, if you will. I've lied. Well, that, that means I'm not welcome in the New Jerusalem, right? No, it's mentioning people in open rebellion against God. That would be one example. But who are those who are in the kingdom of God? It's not the non-liars. It's the Jesus pluses, those who are in Christ Jesus, because no one comes to the Father except by him. And that's quoting him. So, oh, do I have to repent in order to be worthy of heaven? Well, repentance, literally metanoia, to do a 180, is turning from those things into Christ, but in Christ, your salvation isn't dependent on your cessation of sin, but your perpetual abiding in a relationship with him, which is going to include repentance, but it's not contingent upon it. So the point of the matter is this, when people get into the works righteousness debacle and saying that my salvation depends on me no longer doing this said thing, well, inevitably they end up doing that said thing or some other thing that eventually catches them up or catches up to them in life, and it ultimately leaves them thinking that they're cast out of heaven's gates. But the reality is, why do any of us enter in there at all? It's because we are with the Lamb, that we are of his flock. How do we become a part of that flock? Not by the cessation of sin, but by believing in the, in the one whom he has sent. That is, of course, also quoting him. So, Make sure that when we understand salvation, it's not based on our goodness, but his goodness, that our motivation for holiness isn't based on our idealism, but his perfect example. And that, of course, when we're talking to even ourselves about why I believe that I'm saved, that the conversation doesn't get a syllable into the conversation before these two, Jesus. And I think you don't have to worry about the examples of how not like Jesus we tend to be. I think that's great. Mm. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Next question is an an email question we got uh, along several series of questions that we're kind of taking it piece by piece. So, Karen, if you're listening, we really appreciate you emailing us. The question is about smoking cigarettes. Uh, Mentions having tried to quit three or four times, but there seems to be this route. Um, And as curious uh, also as to know whether or not Uh, smoking is actually a sin. Is smoking cigarettes a sin? And why is it so hard to quit something if there's a conviction of sin about it? 
Yeah, um, there's a passage that escapes me as far as direct citation where Paul mentions, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And that's usually where we discuss addictive substances and the Christian life. Uh, when it comes to the cultural view and the medical view towards certain things, there's a lot of things, and I mean a lot of things, that if you were to discuss them as commonly as we do in the United States, they would see it with a bit more clear perspective, I'd say, than we tend to make excuses for and vice versa towards their vices. For example, in Europe, uh, if you don't go out for a beer with the boys at the pub, especially in Germany and England, that's a grade A insult. If you don't, uh, especially in the Midwestern United States, as opposed to the more um, <clears throat> urban, I think is the word I'm looking for, areas, uh, the more city localized places where people are, how could you put a cigarette in your mouth? Well, growing up on tobacco farms, that's just a way of uh, coping with stress in the same way that cell phone use could be compared to culturally. When people talk about the issues that they have with, you know, well, you know, got to go out and uh, grab something to eat, and then you look at most other cultures and say, you're eating that? You're defiling your body with those kinds of foods? They would look at gluttony. They would look at other forms of <laughs> drugs. They would even look at caffeine for corn's sake and say that that is as much an addictive substance as any other. So when the joke's oftentimes thrown around, well, I go to hell if I smoke cigarettes. No, you'll go to heaven just much faster. It's describing <laughs> something like lots of things that are unhealthy. But when it comes to the wisdom of certain things, especially things that are used as a method for coping, things like uh, dipping, things like smoking, things like drinking, these sort of deals. Um, even, uh, for example, I went out with a hike of a veteran friend of mine, and he does THC vaping because of his joint pain. I don't hold it against him. I keep an eye on it in case it takes over his life, but I don't fault him for it because he's doing this with his motives set and clear. But there's a, a passage in Proverbs, which is where you generally go for to wisdom, where I think it was Lemuel, or no, excuse me, Lemuel's mother, who made the following observation. Verse 4 of Proverbs 31, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, the wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. The foundation of this, without getting into the way these ought to be taught, and it, it's a parable for all intents and purposes. It's describing a contrast between a person of responsibility and a person of no responsibility, a person whose actions have consequences and a person who's living out the consequences of his actions. Mm -hmm. And you're put in a situation where they ought to have their pain and perception numbed because all they have in life is the faults of their decisions, whereas a person who has not yet seen the faults of his decisions and the decisions that it will be the fault of many others around them ought not to dull their senses with, it gives the example of strong drink, but of anything. So when people are turning to cigarettes because I can't stop, I'd go to the Paul passage and note you're brought under the power of something. That's the issue, not this thing in of itself, because there's lots of things we do that are unhealthy. That's All just things one. are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And that's what you need to watch out for, the lack of self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand you're noting, well, you know, there's, there's no positive way 
to do those things. Well, there's no positive way to engage in the kind of dietary plans that many of the United States approach. They say, no, 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 I'm, I'm thankful to the Lord for these things. Apply the logic the other way. Mm-hmm. It just ends up being a circular conversation because sure. they don't make excuses the way that we do. Point we made is this. A lot of things are unhealthy. I'm repeating it because I want that to be clear. But if it's addictive, that's the conviction because no self-control. If it's at a point in your life where you're doing it to treat legitimate issues, I don't fault you for it, but that doesn't mean that those consequences go away, which is why our counsel, generally, when people come to us and saying, you know, should I smoke medicinal marijuana? Should I approach these sort of things? I say, what are your other options? Because there is a trade-off. If you pursue those kinds of medicines, uh, even fentanyl, for example, that's going to rob you of faculties that you may want to have access to even at this point in your life. But if there is no other option, then we don't fault you for it. That's the point. So if you're talking to someone about cigarettes, talk to them the same way you would about wine. Talk to them the same way you would about overeating or poor choices in what you eat. Talk to them the same way they would about uh, helpings and portions and dessert. Talk to them about the same way you'd use about their cell phone use. And on it goes. Point is, unhealthy doesn't mean sinful, but there are things that are that should be, uh, I guess addressed or considered when deciding if this is the best use of your time and energy. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add to that, and I think that that really covered uh, most of it, is uh, when you're dealing with, you know, the whole subject of any habitual sin, uh, you know, there are people who will share testimonies of saying, yeah, you know, I've, I was on drugs or, you know, I was smoking four packs a day or I was, uh, you know, uh, in bondage to alcohol. I couldn't get through the day uh, without, uh, you know, having to, you know, drink and so on. And we'll hear testimonies about people who say, you know, but then the Lord just took it away. He just took away the desire. And, uh, you know, if you've had that experience, then good on you. Uh, I think that's that's awesome. Uh, the, the problem with hearing testimonies like this uh, falls in the lap of people that don't experience that kind of instantaneous deliverance. And, uh, you know, the thing I've discovered in my Christian life, it kind of comes down to this, uh, the the Christian life is such a daily kind of a thing. Uh, you know, I can't live on yesterday's manna, right? Yesterday's spiritual victory. You know, the people of Israel, when they were in the wilderness, were fed by God with manna that fell from heaven. But they were only they were told only to get enough for the day. And human nature being what it is, uh, some people say, well, what if I don't feel like going and getting manna tomorrow? I'll get a couple of days worth and hide it in the thing. Well, it would turn wormy and smelly overnight. Uh, so it wasn't God pulling a practical joke on them. It was God telling us that we need a relationship with God today. We can't look at yesterday's manna as being sufficient for us today. Nor did God give them, except in the case of when it was the Sabbath, enough manna for two days going into the future. Uh, the standard operating procedure was this. Trust me with your life today. You know, I think there are fewer more powerful uh, insights that we can ever get into the Christian life. And sometimes habitual sin, and habitual sin kind of like being uh, like uh, God's warning to Cain, that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must overcome it. Uh, Well, how do you overcome it? Well, uh, what is the victory that overcomes the world? John wrote, 1 John, our faith. First of all, we have to come to God in faith in him, not in faith in our 
you know, I'm going to suffer all my self-will and I'm going to beat this thing down for the glory of God. You might make it a few days, you know, white knuckling it and cold turkeying it and all the other uh, expressions we have about that. Sooner or later, you're going to run out of gas. Sooner or later, we run out of strength. Sooner or later, we have a weak moment. Boom, we're right back into it all over again. There's an alternative, though. If I decide one day at a time, I'm going to wake up in the morning before my day gets going, acknowledge, first of all, uh, my powerlessness, that I can't manage my life on my own power and my own strength. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confessing sin doesn't just mean saying, oh, I did that over here and I'm really sorry for it. It also means confessing that I'm a sinner, that the one thing I do, like falling off a log, is falling into sin, and that this is another day where that could happen to me. It's desire, sin's desires for me, it's crouching at the door, but I can overcome it. How? First, by faith in God, realizing I'm not in the battle uh, alone. Secondly, understanding the resources that God gives me just to win the battle today. Uh, and, and the most important resource that we get is the empowering work of God's Holy Spirit that we receive by faith. We don't receive it by works or by good deeds. We receive it by faith, simply by asking the Lord for this. And this is the battle. Uh, Galatians 5 and verse 16 says, uh, I say, then walk in the spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, what the Bible isn't saying is you need a new list of to-dos and to-don'ts. Because as soon as that comes in, our flesh just loves that. And there's only one of two things that will happen. We'll either keep our to-do list and become insufferably proud. We'll violate our to-do list and uh, end up feeling condemned. But there's a third alternative, and that is coming to the Lord in faith, asking for the power of the Holy Spirit before your day even gets going. Please give me that coming upon power of the Spirit. Lord, live your life out through me. And when the temptation comes to go back into that same kind of lifestyle again, Lord, give me the wisdom to turn to you as many times in the day as I need to ask for your overcoming power, let me ask for that and by faith believe you for that. Now, does that mean that you're going to then have a, an unbroken track record of complete victory over these things? Um, well, maybe the Lord will take away that desire. Sometimes he does that. But more often than not, he wants to let patience have its perfect work, that you might be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. We have to learn to endure under, that's what the word patience means, the challenges that these sort of things present to us in our lives. And so the more we, we learn that, well, uh, I'm not one of those people where God's just taking the desire away, I'm going to have to deal with this myself. The more we look at that, and we, the more we look at whatever our challenge is and say, all right, I've got a couple options here. I can either try by the flesh to master this or give into the flesh and let it master me. Or I can be led of the Spirit. I can ask by faith for the coming on power of the Spirit. I can ask him to supernaturally give me the grace just to get through. And, uh, you know, if you're in recovery groups, you know this. Uh, they call it the 13-minute uh, window that uh, there is, uh, you know, we just feel overwhelmed by the practice of our addiction. Oftentimes, they'll just say, just hang in there for 13 minutes and see if it changes. Oftentimes, that'll be enough time for the intensity of what you're facing to be able to pass. And during that time, seeking the Lord, asking for his power, asking for him to live his life out through you. 
And I'm not saying that if you even have that commitment, you're not going to stumble and fall a few times, but you're going to discover something. Maybe you're going to see your stumbling and falling, well, a little less than you used to at first. Maybe, you know, you're going to do a real spiritual face plant and your flesh is going to do a tap dance on your head saying, oh, just go eat worms. God doesn't love you. You're not really a Christian. Well, that's the flesh's ultimate victory because then the flesh has you all to itself, uh, our fallen nature, that is. So don't give in to that. Um, you know, be a person that realizes that in the Christian race, we all trip and stumble and get our skin knees from time to time. But the Lord who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. God is for you. Who will be against you? You know, and Jesus wants the best for you. Don't let perfectionism or even the habits of the past crowd out this amazing blessing that receiving the filling and empowering work of the Holy Spirit can be. And again, remember that 13-minute rule. If you can just disengage, get away from the possible practice of that addiction, even for 13 minutes, uh, you'll be amazed at uh, how uh, things can change. Sound wisdom. Thank you. And uh, stuff. Talon gave the passage I was uh, forgetting citation for, 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Thank, thank you, Talon. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. Uh, Mike Hill, uh, a few days ago, wanted to know, what is your response to people who say Jesus is a man-made God and his real name is Yeshua? I was challenged <laughs> by this today and didn't know how to respond. Uh, I, I don't, don't think that's they, worth a response. <laughs> I don't know if they mean that we're using a made-up name that's a westernized... Actually, it's Greek, but... Uh, a, a co-opted name and that we should be calling him by his real name or if they mean that Jesus in his enti- his entirety like a mythicist yeah. is a man-made god <laughs> yeah they, there's when people say that either Jesus never existed Jesus is the fabrication or a myth Jesus is this or that they're going to have to give examples and one of the ways they usually go about it is you know man-made god okay so here's where the men that made him or here's what this was made from they, they give some substance but if the fact that names can be different across cultures and languages, the substance of their argument. I don't think intellectual conversation is possible, but we'll try. So uh, for those who don't know, Jesus is the Greek iteration or pronunciation, which would come across in, say, Spanish as Jesus, which would be in English, Joshua, which would in, you know, name your dialect in Japanese would be Aesu. In Hebrew, it would be Yeshua, Yeshua, which is a conjunction of Hosea and Yahweh, the covenant name of God. God is salvation or Savior. That's why in the Gospel of Matthew, the famous Christmas passage where he clarifies, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why does that join? Well, knowing the name is the significant part of that. And in the Bible, especially in the ancient world, people were given names because names had significance. It just wasn't something that you'd associate with someone or something that you liked or that you uh, liked the sound of. For example, uh, Caesar Augustus chose his name because the name Augustus literally means of the gods. It wasn't that he's like, you know, I'm tired of people calling me Octavius. Keep associating with an octopus or something. I don't like it. No, it was literally <laughs> They to... made fun of me on the playground for that. <laughs> yeah, and it might have been the fact you were a child male prostitute, but that's another issue. So the point being made Yikes. is... <laughs> history. Um, the point being made is this. When we're talking about significance of names, if they don't grasp that, 
and that's their objection. Maybe we can Iron Man this a little bit and say, what are the reasons people think that Jesus is a man-made God? And can give a few minutes to that. But if they don't understand, Hebrew, Yeshua, Jesus in Spanish, Joshua in English, Jesus in Greek, take your pick. The name's meaning is going to be pronounced differently based off of what culture, what tongue, what background is pronouncing it. But it's no more significant to the name of Jesus, God is salvation in Greek, than it would be in Hebrew, Yeshua, than it would be in Japanese, Yesu, on and on it goes. So, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. But let's do something that we can do something with. Uh, uh, Say a Bill Maher individual comes along and says, oh yeah, Jesus, who's uh, completely copied from the uh, solar uh, astrological cycles, you know, Sol Invictus and all that stuff. And, you know, the Egyptian god Horus was born of a virgin and uh, born on December 25th and yada, yada, yada. Well, the best way the to... The Zeitgeist movie. Yeah, that, that's the yeah. most prominent resource for it, but it goes back to Tubigen and Wellhausen in Germany. Yeah, sure. The idea of these mythicist theories are treated along the same lines in intellectual circles, and by that I don't mean people just with credentials. I mean people actually know what they're talking about. Around the same department as Holocaust deniers, although I heard that's getting traction again. When we're talking to people who will reject the existence of Jesus or affiliate him with these pagan myths, there's two fallacies at work here, and the first is what we call um, I'm trying to remember the exact name of it. It's um, not syncretism or uh, like, oh, parallelomania. That was the word that they came up for. They would overemphasize the... <laughs> Sounds like an album by The Who, but go ahead. Yeah, parallelomania <laughs> is you would find something that could vaguely be associated with another inconsequential detail and then overemphasize those similarities and then undermine the differences to hyper or manically emphasize the parallels while undermining those things, it's about as significant as someone playing connect the dots and saying, look at this wonderful uh, drawing that I produced. No, you were following a pattern here that was set out from someone else, and it's not necessarily what's being portrayed there. So when people say, oh, well, Horace was born, how, how R-rated should I get with that, the Horace thing? Not very, but okay. you'll get the idea. <laughs> you get the idea. The claim that Horus was born of a virgin is verifiably false. Isis was not a virgin, let's put it that way, when she uh, no, produced Horus. That's a big N-O. Yeah. And her father, Osiris, was dead at the time, so fill in the details there. Uh, when we're talking about, oh, the astrological cycle, and they say, oh, the three kings uh, passes through, the Virgo and all these other things— that doesn't happen on December 25th. That happens every night. <laughs> We're in a rotating perception of the stars and so forth. When they say, oh, Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus had its date moved several times throughout Roman history, and it was actually moved to December 25th to copy the Christians. You say, oh, Christians, they copied that from Buddhism or Egyptian mythology and stuff. First, show where and when. Uh, I recently dealt with a Buddhist making that claim, and it turns out that Buddha was born in the fourth lunar month of the Hindu calendar, not December 25th. And while we're on the topic, 
The Bible never says Jesus was born on December 25th. They made that presumption because they believed culturally the perfect life was going to die on the same day they were conceived. So if he was dead in late March, the time of Passover, early April, they said, well, it must be late January or early January, late December. So certain groups have picked certain days. That's why you have in the Orthodox Church and other denominations early January Christmas. But the point being made is this. When people try to make a claim, like Bill Maher, like Sam Harris, like Richard Carrier, just to name a few mythicists, they have to put their money where their mouth is. They can't just give a citation that says the opposite of what they claim, or at least says just enough of what they claim to get away with it as long as their audience doesn't know it. That's the second fallacy, depending on ignorance and standing on your authority in areas that have nothing to do with this. I don't doubt that Richard Carrier is a great Egyptologist, but his claims about the hieroglyphics being the actual origins of Christianity are complete nonsense. Sam Harris may be something of a philosopher, de uh, deconstructed his own credibility as of late, but he doesn't know anything about theology or history, or metaphysics for that matter. Bill Maher may be a talk show host, but that doesn't mean that he knows what he's talking about. On and on it goes. So whether you're like Bill Maher and just copy all your jokes from Steven Crowder, whether you're like Sam Harris and are writing the credentials <laughs> of an... I'm not kidding. Yeah, oh, yeah, Look I at it. it. Some of aren't... They don't even wait a day, by the way. It's hilarious. Whether you're like Bill Maher, whether you're like Sam Harris and just riding off the coattails of an unrelated field, or like Richard Carrier, who no one listens to anymore, we need to make sure that we're willing to say... Huh, that's interesting, but there's something about this that bothers me. Uh, even today, I was uh, approached to sign a petition about uh, abortion here in the, in specifically the state of Arizona. I kept asking her questions, clarifying what she actually wanted me to sign for, and she got so frustrated that I think, uh, um, well, she wasn't as qualified as she made herself out to be to be asking people to support what she didn't know. But the point being made is this ask for specifics, and that throws these things out the mm. window. That's the best way to respond, and it encourages follow-ups. But if, on the other hand, you're talking to someone whose argument is, hey, Jesus wasn't even his name, it was Yeshua, you don't even know how languages work, and I'm surprised you've managed English. Sorry to be smarmy, but that's the intellectual engagement we're getting into at yeah, that point. Yeah, it's almost as silly as saying, well, you can't say Jesus because I live in Colombia and we call him Jesus. There you go. Metal. <laughs> Debunked. Hashtag destroyed. Hashtag destroyed. Uh, Yari wanted to know, uh, is there wisdom in that Proverbs 19.4 have uh, something to offer? Um, so, yeah, Proverbs 19.4. What is, what is the, the wisdom of Proverbs 19.4? Uh, we talked about that. Um, wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. Um, I'll, I'll go over it really, really briefly. It's not describing how things ought to be. It's describing the way that things are. But in the most broad sense, it's not saying that, you know, wealthy people have great friends. The wealthiest people say, I don't have friends. I just have people who want something from me. The idea is if you want friends, have something to offer, which is why wealth is something that you ought to exercise wisdom to gain. Because the more you have to offer somebody, the better off you and they are. But if you don't have anything to offer, then you're not going to be good in relationships. Apply this to the Messiah. He had everything to offer us, and thus that's why we ought to be ones that pursue a relationship with him. Yeah, and it's the difference between uh, the way relationships work in this world and the way the relationships work in the kingdom of God, beginning with Jesus, right? 
Um, you know, when we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For perhaps for a good man, someone might die, and for a righteous man, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How interesting that one of the first statements Jesus made in the Beatitudes are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, the word poor there is uh, the, the word that describes a beggar in a third world sense, not just someone that can only afford a cricket cell phone, but someone that is literally living hand to mouth, doesn't even know how they're going to survive another day. Uh, and when we come to God on that basis, that we're not bringing something to this party, uh, he accepts us, he loves us. Uh, you know, in this world, however, people will love you if you're lovable. People will love you if you make them feel good. People will love you if they feel like loving you can get them where they want to go. And when you are no longer useful along those, those lines, then oftentimes you're discarded. But we have the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Wow. Yep. That's very comforting. Born for adversity. We have yeah. time for, maybe maybe we can get this. Lisa asked on Facebook, who is Jesus referring to in Luke chapter 8, verse 10, and chapter 10, verse 27? Or are these questions for him when we see him face to face? Um, it's a ref the first one, eight ten is a reference to the book of Isaiah. It's referring to the audience um, in contrast to when Jesus was talking to his disciples about the meaning of the parables. He says, you're going to understand this, but they're not. And if you read the passage in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 6 and 7, uh, he makes the point of emphasis. You're going to tell them to show they had no excuse, not to convince them. And that's the whole point of all of this. They're going to know that I reached out to them, not the fact that they're so uh, intellectual and only follow the facts, ma'am. Uh, 27's pretty much the opposite of that. In the, uh, you shall love the Lord your heart with all your mind, soul, body, and strength. That's in reference to everybody. That's the perfect Christian life. Awesome. Well, thanks, gentlemen. And then uh, please stick around. We're going to be live streaming our Oasis service going through the book of Ezekiel here in uh, a very short while. So thank you for tuning in. We'll see you soon. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.